0: You are listening to the 44th Street Podcast, a production of the New York City Bar Association. My name is Tim Peterson, your host and engineer for this program. Just as a note, the opinions expressed here are those of the speaker or speakers, and not necessarily those of the New York City Bar Association, and are not intended as legal advice. This is Tim Peterson of the 44th Street Podcast. We recorded this Hackapalooza podcast at the law firm of Morrison Mahoney in the heart of New York City's Financial District on April 18th, 2019. Unfortunately, the original recording of the podcast introduction did not give my guests the proper due, so I am re-recording the introduction here. In alphabetical order, our first guest was Adam Abrish, who is a national cyber practice leader for Acresure, one of the top 10 insurance brokerages in the world. Adam is also a trumpet player. Our second guest was John Curran, the CEO and co-CISO for Redpoint Cybersecurity, an ethical hacking and incident response firm, which he founded in 2017 in partnership with Anchin, Block & Anchin, a leading New York City-based accounting and advisory firm. Our third guest was Stephen Ramey, a director in the Group's New York City office, where he regularly advises clients on data breach response, digital investigations, and computer security. And finally, our physical host and co-host was Bob Stern, a partner in the New York office of Morrison Mahoney, where his practice focuses on cybersecurity, privacy, and data protection. I am biased, of course, but I think the podcast is terrific. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. I'm going to start off first with uh, just like a, a general discussion of hacking, where it has been, the origins of hacking, and where it is going. So. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, the origins of hacking and the current state of technology? I
1: guess I'll jump in. Um, so I don't know if I'm gonna to speak to the origins of hacking, that's a long story and I'm not sure I'm the expert on that, but um, I would just say in terms of what we're seeing today from small, medium, and large firms across different industry segments, um, and, and I'll throw government in there just because I have some exposure to that and, and I know it applies, is that, is that it's very real. It's increasingly uh, real and relevant to small and medium firms that maybe were not, at least didn't think of themselves as targets before a few years back, you know, and increasingly they are, um, whether it's through targeted attacks, uh, which can include things like social engineering, or whether it's through you know, malware and ransomware that happens to get them and then you know, they're caught up in that net and it leads to other things but one way or another, uh, it's very real. It's a very real threat, Um, and it's it's very uh, very much a part of the lives of uh, many of our clients today uh, that we work with. And so I'll just, there's a lot of different directions you can take the conversation, but I'll just say that uh, typically when we're engaged to ethical hacking services, our focus is to demonstrate how you could get into a network or an application, or a particular endpoint security configuration or, or security suite that someone wants tested. And most of the time, uh, what we find is that how we got in and then where, how far we were able to get and then how quickly is a surprise to the people involved. And so it's it's good in the sense that it's educational, but it's, it's very telling in the sense that the typical security protocols and access controls and, and whatnot that are being used to defend against perceived threats of hacking are, uh, are typically not 100% of, of where they would need to be.
2: Yeah, piggybacking off those comments, um, from an investigation side, you know, we see everything from the, the script kiddies just launching a script, some, some old exploit looking for a Windows 7 or a Windows 2003 machine on the internet, to very sophisticated, we got into your network from somebody looking at their Gmail account on a corporate asset and now the attackers have been there for six months and they perform some type of data mapping exercise for your systems, what type of information is on there, the usernames for those backups. Um, the, the, The analogy I can draw is you have a child walking down a street, knocking on every single door to see who's home. Or you have the burglar who's sitting in the van parked on your street watching the movement down the street, see who comes and goes at what time. Same thing happens with their computer networks. If you have a computer connected to the internet, there's going to be a door that those hackers can get through to get to your network, to get to your valuable data.
0: So what, what, what typical techniques do hackers use in terms of being able to obtain unauthorized access to a computer network?
2: i have to go with social engineering as the number one. Uh, the human element is always the weakest link, um, and we're easily deceived. You know, a phishing email comes in, that's gonna, you know, Microsoft Word, for example, it has VB script embedded into the, the core of the program. So the hacker puts malicious code into the VB into the VB environment of the Word document. The user is tricked into opening it. They launch the macro, the macro then uses PowerShell natively on the system, and that creates a reverse connection back to the attacker's um, command and control server. From there, it can download malware, it can find data on your computer, send it outbound, all automatically. And the attacker does this as a shotgun blast across the world, trying to find as many points of of entry as possible. All that information comes back, they sift through it and say, hey, we have something here, let's go to this system, let's laterally move throughout that network. So uh, to me, I think phishing, social engineering is the number one cause of uh, breaches
1: yeah I'll, I'll just add to that I think that's it that's that's exactly right um, 90 95% probably still social engineering there's other ones we can talk about but you know that's the biggie and then you hit on another core point which is a couple of things there one is um, you mentioned PowerShell you mentioned running VB scripts things like that that are important to note for everybody is that you know you can talk about how easy it is to identify that and lock that down but then you always run into this this issue of business process business needs you know if you're working in a whether it's financial services and you need to open an Excel spreadsheet, or you know you're, you're whatever you're a network administrator and you need to use PowerShell, um, or just the fact that you can embed a process, right? You can embed a piece of C Sharp or something like that into you know a, a native uh, utility on Windows up op- you know Windows 10 like um, MS Build exec or something, or something like that. You're, those are not only do they often show up as authorized users and authorized activity, but they're also very even if you know they're there. And you say that's not authorized per se locking it down um, is can oftentimes be very difficult because it's part of the, the daily life of and the daily routine of your users
3: yeah and just something i would say to that right like i always try to keep in mind that you know, whether it be the internet or different programs whatever we're talking about word documents the internet like it was all built with connectivity and efficiency in mind right like that was the initial intention of it so there's a, if something's built to connect people and put people together, a lot of the cybersecurity stuff that we're doing is kind of reverse engineering to try to prevent some of that. So the hackers are always trying to find new ways and whether it involves people or it involves technology or it involves a combination of the two, like you're talking about with the Word documents. You know, I get that question a lot where some, you know, somebody's like, I don't understand how that happens and you just give a great example of something being embedded in a Word document and it involves macros, but the majority of the time, once you get to that level of sophistication, when you're talking to somebody, they, I start to lose them a lot of the times. And the point is that you know, you're going about your daily life and you're working each day and doing what you came into work to do, and you're not necessarily focused on what is in this document that was sent to me, right? I, you just know that you got a document. You get Word documents every day. I know I do in Excel spreadsheets so on the face of it how do you know as the end user whether or not what you're clicking on is going to basically make your entire organization vulnerable i think that's part of what makes it so scary you know i think
4: one of the things that we're discussing here is exploits and how different organizations are attacked and steve you had mentioned social engineering and you know for our audience out there who may not be familiar with social engineering and how that taps into the weakest link, usually it's an employee working at a company that inadvertently clicks on a um, malicious link and it causes damages to the damage network. What is social engineering?
2: You know, it, it's, it's a great question. It's It's really you tricking the end user into understanding that you may not be who you say you are. So um, a good example would be me calling tech support multiple times to get pieces of information on how do I get to a supervisor, what's the supervisor's number, what's, what's their email address if I need to get a hold of them again. You know, company policies would say don't give this out, but if you talk to these people long enough and you're persistent, you're going to get a lot of this information. Now you have a supervisor's email, you have a phone number, now you can go and call someone and say, hi, I'm so-and-so from XYZ Company. I'm the supervisor calling on behalf of you know this issue please call me back at this and give it your phone number Uh, so that that's an easy way of of handling that or you can send an email and spoof the email as if you were the supervisor and um, in the reply to you put a different email address so it looks like it came from the supervisor you send it out Um, the individual responds back to your email address unknowingly that they even though even though your email address changed in the two line when they click respond and you could say, "I need your username and password so that I can troubleshoot your issue correctly." So, so, tricking, you know, the act of deception, tricking that end user, that victim, into giving you information they don't realize they're giving you, is to me what social engineering is all about.
4: So, it really comes down to psychological manipulation and tapping into, you know, people's instincts mm-hmm. in many ways. To like, they see an email that appears to be legitimate, right? Mm-hmm. And then will they know it, maybe they've been instructed to wire funds to if they're in the finance department, thinking that they received an email from uh, the CEO directing them to wire funds to a certain vendor that they're familiar with, but it's not the vendor at all. Have you seen that before, Steve?
2: Yeah, business email compromise is huge. Uh, We get it in two shapes and forms. The um, individual's account actually gets hacked, and the attacker kicks them out of their account, changes passwords, sends emails out, they create rules on the inbox to automatically route replies to forward out, to delete, or um, an example I gave before where they just send a, a blanket email out to an address and they change the from information uh-huh. and the reply to goes to their account and then they can maintain those communications that look like or appear to be um, who they intend to, to um, represent. A, a, good, a good movie about social engineering is the, the catch me if you can, I forget the the uh, individual's name, but it was the, the, the yeah, Leonardo, Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio yeah. yeah. And that's that's social engineering at its best when he's running around, he's, he's uh, creating the check fraud and um, he's assuming all these different identities and he's tricking everyone around him to give him money. And he's living this, this lavish life until he finally gets caught. Well,
4: that, that's very interesting and Adam, I think you'll wanna to speak to as far as uh, this is compromised fraud and whether you know insurance would, What type of insurance
3: might cover that? Right. And from an insurance perspective, social engineering has been really interesting because it depends on what happens, right? Like if somebody, uh, this is how I always look at it, if somebody steals information, right, then you're probably looking towards a cyber liability policy. But if you're now talking about theft of money or securities, now you're looking at a crime policy so you know the crime policies have been around for a long time cyber cyber coverage obviously has evolved but come along more steadily in the last 5 6 years so you, there may be organizations out there with crime policies that don't contemplate the social engineering aspect and then the cyber policy if the com- if companies have them you know i mean right now the total market penetration in terms of cyber liability is right around 30% it gets more penetrated as you go into the larger scale companies, you know, the Fortune 1000. Um, But as you go down that link, it becomes, you know, the penetration is lessened. Now you're talking about a situation where you either may not have the coverage at all on your crime policy, or if you have it on a cyber policy, it's sublimited down. You know, I think there is, uh, there's a city down in Florida recently that was just victimized, um, that came out in the news, where, you know, they had been paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to a vendor, and they, you know, they just figured it out now, and that's, that just goes back, I mean, that's the stories all the time, to your point. People have been tricking people out of money for a really long time, now we just have computers as a means to do it. You know? So uh, from an insurance perspective, that coverage has been evolving, and sometimes you wanna make sure that, not sometimes, you wanna make sure that your policies line up and dovetail with each other to make sure there's no gap in coverage there.
0: So it sounds like that from an insurance perspective that um, uh, security of your network might be uh, maybe not even as important as uh, a certain psychological mindset within uh, a corporation. How how do you look for, how do you achieve uh, assurances that a a corporation is not easily suckered into doling out hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, a vendor? Uh, through cyber fraud means or maybe even through the old-fashioned I'm gonna invoice you for services that I never rendered type of thing.
3: Right and that's a that's a great question and you know something that something that I'm a big proponent of is taking the holistic approach towards cyber risk right like cybersecurity alone isn't solution cyber insurance alone isn't a solution and I think and training to that end, is not a solution in and of itself. I think it comes down to how do you create a culture within an organization where cyber risk is taken seriously, and you know how do you how do you get the buy-in of the everyday users, right? Because a lot of these large organizations, you have know, thousands of employees that are out there working every single day, and how do you make sure that everybody there is engaging, or you know, there's a buy-in for them where they understand how important this is. And they're really the front line of the defenses. So I think that training is incredibly important. Um, I think testing. There's a lot. There's certainly a lot of services that you can utilize, where you know you can test phishing emails and you can try to see how strong people's defenses are. And it, and it's also important for those organizations not to make this you know a penalty, right? This isn't this isn't something we want to send out to be like, hey, you're an idiot. You clicked on this, and now you know we're not giving you a raise or we're taking away your bonus because you did that but it's to make people better.
4: Yes, I want to
1: just add to that I think that's exactly right and you know certainly Adam and I have talked about this a bunch of times I mean the training is essential proactive testing and breach readiness reviews are essential Um, but another you know aspect to this is is this uh, this general awareness both the top-down awareness and the top-down culture that we're getting to, but also the importance of understanding that it's not if, but when. I mean, even, even with all the training, even with all the testing, you're eventually gonna have something happen. And so accepting that and making a risk management process, right, where you're not only sort of periodically testing and periodically reevaluating and doing these things, uh, but also you have a very real live incident response plan. You have folks you've talked to ahead of time that you have on speed dial to get in there when something happens. Um, one, one thing that people don't realize oftentimes don't realize, uh, when you're talking about the way it breaches can develop, and how quickly it can develop uh, and escalate, is that, you know, we do these phishing exercises, we do pen testing and other things, um, and, and, and they'll look at it like it's sort of binary, we passed or failed. So the first thing is to dispel that. It's not binary, pass or fail. This is a risk management process. You're constantly learning and, and getting better. The other thing to know, though, is that at a point of compromise, let's say credentials are either uh, captured through social engineering or they're they dumped. Somebody makes it onto an endpoint and they manage to dump credentials. And uh, you know, if somebody's you know, worst case, maybe they're running as local admin and you've got that. So you're you're escalating privileges now. You're you're operating as a local admin. Maybe uh, you do some other things. The point is that that can move very very quickly. Um, and by the time something's detected, even if they get alerted by uh, a service they're using or their own IDS, IPS systems. Uh, it's, it's oftentimes post where we've achieved uh, domain admin, which basically means you own the network at that point. You can get the information you need, you set up your outbound encrypted channels, you're exfiltrating data. The response is great, but again, it's important not to view these things as binary. Did we see a response? Did we not? Did we get the phone call? Did we not? Because these are very live dynamic situations you're in. They can evolve very rapidly and so I think it's more about like an athlete training and getting ready for a competition. It's not a matter of zero or one the outcome, it's a matter of this is a gradual process of improvement um, and, you're, and you're constantly looking for ways to get better.
0: Okay, so you mentioned, you mentioned pen testing, you mentioned fishing. Can you describe that for our audience a little bit more, like what exactly, what's, when you talk about the steps that you take to ensure that your network is secure, what exactly are you doing? What is phishing? What is pen testing?
1: Yeah, so the, the phishing is sort of the easy one. I mean, that's where you craft, let's say it's, a, it's texting or it's voice calls or it's an email that looks like, you know, somebody that you should trust and they're trying to gather information from you and maybe trying to get you to link. Uh, 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 click a link where they're trying to get you to open a document uh, you know, to, to establish a connection to their server and things like this. Uh, that's pretty straightforward in the sense that there's, I'll just say there's lots of commercial services out there that uh, they're not necessarily great at that but, but it's, it's, it's easy to sort of identify how, how do you conduct a phishing simulation. It's something everyone should be doing. It's very, very important. Uh, the one that, that people are less, the kind of side of pen testing and, and whatnot that people are less aware of is the need to use credentialed, experienced ethical hacking teams who are able to either leverage that phishing incident as a, a foothold and do more with that to show you where it can go. Once somebody clicks, what's the end result? Potentially, did they hook your browser? Were they able to install a key logger on that endpoint, start capturing keystrokes? Did they quickly pivot off of that machine onto others and now they're somewhere else in the environment? Again, establishing outbound channels and things. Um, that's the part of the equation that's sort of what happens next, that at least from an educational standpoint and a, and a, and a, and a breach readiness standpoint, we find people are, are least aware of these days. They've usually heard of fishing, uh, but, but they're kind of under the sort of impression that uh, if you're doing the fishing simulation in itself, you're, you're you're doing what's called ethical hacking or pen testing, and that's just not true.
0: Okay, so let's say there has been a breach. Um, what steps, as uh, someone who is a, a cybersecurity professional, uh, would you take for your organization uh, in terms of like cleaning the network, or uh, you know, or locking down your systems, or um, like how can you be assured maybe that uh, a hacker might
1: not still be in the system so I, I think the answer to that is you have a lot of parties that need to be involved and that, that includes legal it includes incident response and forensics uh, teams like like Steve's uh, are, are essential to that very first step uh, the insurance groups uh, like like Adam and so there's it, it, if you're talking about kind of what steps do you need to take and where do you start the first thing I think is to identify who are the key parties that need to be on speed dial for that um, so actually, I, I have a lot to say about this, but I'd I'd actually kick it to Steve to kind of uh, share his thoughts on on where that begins. So our team has brought in either breach readiness and ethical hacking or to support through remediation and on-site work. Typically, though, or very often, that in, that involves we're receiving a phone call from a group like Steve. So, you know, he's he's in the room with us.
2: Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, and this gets all to to what you said, John, about the risk management process that the firm should establish prior to the finding the breach, you know. I think today we should all assume we have been hacked, um, just what do we do once we discover, you know, that hack. Um, bringing the, the necessary people to the table um, is the pretty much the first step. Understanding your insurance policies, uh, what does that allow, who are the preferred uh, providers underneath your insurance uh, um, policy, uh, making sure you establish relations with them prior to the breach uh, would be ideal. Uh, but once you get all the, the players at the table, it's, it's really saying, what are our next steps? It's preserving what you can preserve quickly, all the logging information that's available, your firewall logs, your, your Windows event logs, and your systems, any other type of logs that may be deleted automatically that you may not know of. The logs tell, we use those logs as instant responders to paint the story of how individuals got into your network and what they touched and how they moved around. Um, a lot of times the organizations, they set their firewalls to one day or seven days, whatever the default is, and they don't change it. So by the time we get that phone call, it could be 45 days after the event occurred. And so now we're 45 days behind and all that information was set to seven days retention. Well, that's not really gonna help us to understand what type of connections were coming into your organization. The second piece is um, having having an understanding your data, what's in your environment from a data. Um, are you a uh, covered entity? You know, are you going to have health information? Um, do you store or process financial information? Do you retain social security numbers? What's your benefits? Where does that information exist in your organization? Knowing that, knowing where that classified information would sit, helps the incident responders to triage those systems up front to say, okay, we found compromised accounts. They access these systems. We see staging of data. This is the type of data they staged. And it... We just can't tell if it went outbound. We don't have that logging information. But that would at least get legal and um, in the insurance uh, providers to understand what information's at play, what type of, of legalities would come into scope here should the, uh, notification be required. As it EU type of data, you know, uh, European Union uh, GDPR governed data. And that's a very, uh, that's a very discreet window versus, you know, there's a lot of the state um, notifications that, that come into it. Uh, Bob, I'm I'm curious, what's your your take on the disclosure process and understanding when attackers get in that the type of data that's um, at play for your clients?
4: Well, I mean, I I think the law firms, the uh, issue is what, and it really comes full circle to, you know, this is a podcast for the City Bar and it comes down to the law firms and attorneys who may be listening, why should I care about cybersecurity? What information do I have that is sensitive? what information is likely to be breached or of interest to hackers. So, you know, for, in the last couple of years, there have been reports of big firms, big law, that have been hacked for non-public material, material non-public information, so that they can engage in insider, insider trading. And, you know, those firms may have information relating to mergers and acquisitions that is not yet public. They may have other sensitive information that had not yet been made public that would be of value beyond personal identifying information, other sensitive information. But if you're a law firm that isn't servicing Fortune 500 companies, if you're a mid sized firm, a small firm, if they just think in terms of their clients' secrets and competences that they possess in their files, whether it's electronic or physical hard copies, if they think about the if they represent insurance companies in third party defense, they're in possession of medical records, all of which trigger certain obligations to protect. If they have employees, they have personal identifying information in all likelihood in their systems that they need to protect. So, for law firms and for our clients, if they're engaged in any way in the handling, processing of any personal identifying information, private health information or protected health information on the HIPAA, all that stuff would be of concern to them. And the question becomes, and I think, Steve, you had mentioned it, that what you do for a breach is as important as to what you do after the breach, and having an incident response plan in place is important. But have you done a risk assessment? Have you done you know, penetration testing that John talked about? and have you done it in a way that makes sense and have you actually taken reasonable steps to protect that data? And since we're talking about law firms in general here, um, as it relates to a podcast with City of War, I would just take a moment to note that both the ABA model code and New York's rules of ethics require that law firms take reasonable and competent steps to protect their client's data. And then the question becomes to you, what are those reasonable steps mindful for each law firm of size and shape? They may not have the same resources, something that the, a- the American Bar Association comments recognize that there needs to be some flexibility. It can't be one size fits all, because you can't expect a solo practitioner to implement the same safeguards and measures to protect their data that you would expect with someone with um, another firm that has infinitely more resources.
1: Yeah, so just a couple of things there. These are all great points, and, and a couple of things that I would note dovetailing on, on the comments here from Bob and Steve. First is going back to logs and and steps that you can take proactively, breach readiness review type steps. is Going to logs, that is so critical because so many times when there is a breach and you get involved and you're looking for initial indicators of compromise and also to, you know, identifying patient zero, understanding the path that the attackers took. Are they still on the network? What exactly are they doing? If logging is not enabled, that is a crippling uh, setback, a blocker to to the overall investigation. I would just add, it is dramatic. It, 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 once you get involved in these investigations, you start to notice how few of these organizations have actually taken steps to do to do logging, either at the system level, but really across the stack, which you call security stack. So on the security stacks you're on the network, if you're talking about firewalls and IDS-IPS, if you're talking about DHCP logs, if you're, whatever. I yes. won't go too deep in the technical for this audience, but what I would say is make sure that is part of your breach readiness review. It's being done by people who are trained in investigations and in forensics because they know what they're looking for and that they are comprehensively enabling logs, even at the application layer. So you have remote access applications that we see, you know, that an IT administrator is using to helpfully log in and, and assist users every day. And those logs or an email filter log system that you're using and maybe a third party system or Office 365 UALs unified audit logs that are so critical these days because of business signal compromise and they're not enabled by default. Um, and then when you do, if even if they're enabled, you, know, you wanna be sure you have people like Steve and his team who are involved who understand the process of going through those logs, investigating those logs, as opposed to just using an admin dashboard, which is not uh, nearly as capable. So the logging is critical and I stress that because although it sounds very simple, you, see it, you just see it every day that it's not happening. And then the other thing I'll add real quick here is in terms of types of data, which, which Bob was talking on, types of data that are at risk, Absolutely agree with the you know the PII and the, and the big you know the big issues there. Uh, but I would also add that you know we we work with law firms. We've worked with a number of different types of firms where their initial response is if they if they don't know that that kind of data is at risk and they're not they, they think perhaps that they don't have that kind of data or a third party hosts that particular kind of data mm-hmm. or what have you. Uh, PCI is another one where somebody says somebody else handles the processing. It's not us, right? So that's not a problem there are many different forms of data that are gonna be at risk for any size or type of organization, including just your emails themselves, which are confidential Mm -hmm. correspondence between you and your clients. We've had foundations we've worked with that sell artwork, and the people buying and selling the artwork consider those transactions highly confidential. They don't want that out there. That might not be considered PII per se, but if if that were to be lost and your emails were to be dumped onto a third-party site after they're compromised, you can guarantee, Uh, That people are going to be quite upset by that. So it, it, we have to take a broad view when you think about what kind of data is potentially Mm -hmm. at
3: risk. Yeah, and I think like to to Bob's point and to John's point, what that kind of gets to, especially when you're talking about if you're talking about law firms, small, mid-sized law firms, right? Which is where I, you know, I work with those firms a lot. And what you're thinking about here gets to reputation, right? Think how, think about all of the hard work and the effort that it takes to build a reputation, right? And your clients trust you and you've built a name for yourself and now you have this, this business, this law practice that's thriving, right? And, or maybe it's not thriving, maybe it's just starting out. And now you have one of these incidents where all of a sudden the information that your clients are trusting you with is now out in the open. What does that do to your practice? What does that do to your reputation? You know, And you look at some of the stats behind it Right? Depending on who you listen to, they talk about up to a third of clients leave the organization that's been breached. Now that's not specific to law firms, that's mm-hmm. generally speaking. right? You couple that with the fact that the average first party costs to respond to a data breach like we're talking about here, to do all this incident response, to hire the legal team, to hire the forensics team, to hire the PR team to communicate this out to the affected individuals. right? Those first party costs are now over six hundred thousand dollars in the small to mid size space right worldwide the overall cost of a breach is over three million dollars but if we're focusing on that smaller piece just to respond to these things is going to cost well over half a million dollars and now you're also looking at potentially a third of your clients leaving you after this attack happens where does that leave your business and how are you preparing for
0: that so let's say I'm a, a partner in a medium-sized law firm.
3: Congratulations. <laughs>
0: thank you, thank you. Um, what do I do, or maybe even a small firm, because maybe I don't have a, a, a cybersecurity infrastructure in place. How can I be sure that no one is on my network? Can I, is, is that something that I would have to routinely monitor? Would I have to hire, hire a cybersecurity professional? Like, what exactly would I do?
1: So you, you want to be doing monitoring for sure, that's okay. one thing, but I, I would go beyond that and say that you need to periodically be testing your access controls and, and doing what we call threat hunting. So let me address the, the test one aspect of the testing that I think is critical up front. First of all, you should be doing it periodically. Now, people disagree on how often, and you'll see, depending on uh, what industry you're in and regulatory regime, different advice there or requirements. But the bottom line is it should be periodic and no less than once a year, okay? Because things change rapidly. People come and go, infrastructure changes. So I would just say that. Uh, and I'll mention also that uh, in that context, sometimes folks assume that if they're doing monitoring either through their own systems on, you know, that they administer uh, or through a third party that's a managed service provider that's doing, uh, that's doing monitoring, that that's gonna be good enough. Those are great things to be doing, but you're going to also want to periodically test those and one of the ways that we see, uh, we validate that or, or sort of underscore the importance of it through testing is we, we not only see can we penetrate the network and what can we get to on the network, but can we uh, do the low and slow approach where it's, it's pretty tough to differentiate our traffic from that of a, uh, an, an authorized user in that environment, um, or we'll take control of, of a, an, an IES, IPS system itself, uh, which we did recently. Um, and in doing so, we are able to change any of the alerts we want or disable them all together. Uh, and so you, that system that you would assume is there is not necessarily uh, 100% uh, of what you think it is. I'm not saying it's not, I'm saying you should be testing that to validate it periodically. Um, and then the threat hunting, I'll just jump to that real quickly, is whether it's post-incident or you're simulating, uh, it, it, you're sort of overla- overlapping a bit with this advanced persistent threat, but, but the, threat, the threat hunting is where uh, oftentimes it's post-incident and you're looking for ongoing indicators of compromise on that network, which may or may not be directly tied to malware or ransomware. It could be there's a coincidence or the attacker launched the ransomware as a smoke screen and now they're doing other things in the background, such as exfiltrating data, capturing credentials, and things like that. Um, and to do that um, requires the same kind of skill sets as the attackers themselves are, are using. Uh, and, and so those types of um, preventative and post-breach measures, where you are looking to va- inspect, detect, and validate what's your your, uh, your you know what the steps you're already taking through the investigation or or your uh, your security controls, those are essential. Those are essential and need to be part of the life cycle.
2: Yeah, and to add to that, you mentioned security controls, John. Um, you know, simple things that, that organizations can do, no matter how large or how small. Enable multi-factor authentication, for one, on any web-based accounts. So your payroll accounts, your email accounts, multi-factor authentication. Um, The second piece is secure the entirety of your perimeter from inbound connections. Um, Don't let any of your systems sit on the Internet unless they have to. If it's like a web server, that's going to need exposure to the Internet. But your, your payroll processing system probably won't unless it's outsourced, and that's managed by somebody else. Um, your your remote desktop, your jump servers to get into your organization. Don't put those on the internet. Instead, secure the perimeter and use a VPN. The VPN with multi-factor authentication um, is 99% going to prevent any attackers from gaining access through those types of doorways. So multi-factor is a, a big um, inhibitor, or preventer of, of these attackers gaining access to your web-based systems. And for the audience, can you just
4: uh, explain what multi-factor
2: authentication is? Sure, Um, so single factor is your username and password. So to log into your email, typically you need to know which email provider you have, you go to their website and then it prompts you for your email address or your username and then a password for that account. Uh, Multi-factor adds a third authentication mechanism which is generated on the fly at the time of login. You um, have the means to receive that um, on the fly code whether it's through a SMS, or your text message on your phone, or there's a third party app, or it goes to another email address. That third layer um, passcode then gets entered after your username and password are entered. And through that, those three means, that creates your multi-factor. Or your, that's actually two-factor, but that's a multi-factor style of uh, authentication. What
4: do you think about um, security uh, questions as a multi-factor
2: authentication technique? you have a Facebook account, they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So th-
1: let me let, just add really quickly here a couple things. these are all excellent points. One is uh, multi-factor. Hopefully, it's not SMS they're using. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, absolutely. Multi-factor is so critical. Um, the second thing I would add on this on this point to complement what Steve is saying is the outbound traffic. You know, it's really hard to monitor and, and identify and filter everything coming in. But you know, hopefully, you're you know, using some kind of application white uh, listing service. You know your users. You have behavioral training and things like that. And you can start to sort of understand what's normal outbound traffic, and one, one of the things we see people not doing enough of, but we hope they do more of, and we recommend, is using web application firewall. You're using other means of, of understanding what what that outbound traffic looks like, and you're using that as a means of identifying indicators of compromise um, uh, is essential. That's that's one thing I would add to that in terms of understanding what's coming and going from the environment. Um, it, it, absolutely essential. Well, I mean,
2: we're
4: we're Starting to talk a little bit about security measures that organizations can implement to protect their data, multi-factor authentication being one. Are there other reasonable steps that most organizations, regardless of size, could implement to help protect their data? Firewalls, obviously, are another. But what else would you recommend? John?
1: Yeah, so, so one of them is what I was talking about just now in terms of outbound traffic analysis. It's uh-huh. not just having a web application firewall, but what the services underneath are around that which are analyzing that traffic and understanding behavioral anomalies. So you have authorized user activity that looks like HTTP traffic, normal web traffic, but is it is it authorized from the standpoint of where it's going and when it's happening and a variety of other factors? Um, and that's that's critical uh, in terms of detection. Because again, if you go to this mindset of it's not if, but when, you wanna detect it and remediate, mitigate and remediate as fast as possible when you do have an incident. So that is, that is sort of, uh, Critical from that standpoint. Another thing I'll just mention quickly is, in terms of any size business anywhere you go, people assume you know the password strength and complexity, in addition to the multi-factor, is really really important. And sometimes people assume that you know if you if it's more than eight or ten characters, by traditional wisdom, it's going to be strong. That first of all is is, is old wisdom, right? Because mm-hmm. processing power is much greater than it used to be. Um, so you're going to get up into the fifteen or sixteen characters at this point. Uh, hopefully and you're going to use past phrases that, that, that users can remember that are unique. It's not song lyrics or something that you can scrape from their website, but something that is relatively unique as an overall string.
3: Um, yeah, and look, and I think from, from my perspective, because I, I look at it from the underwriting perspective, and so when I meet with small and mid-sized firms, you know, it's important to keep in mind, like, and John and Steve are both very smart guys who work in this space, and, you know, and I'm... a relatively smart guy that works in this space uh, but there's a lot of the times where I get to this point in the process and the people who are sitting across from me are running their firm or you know they're engaged in a lot of different things and they hear all this and this all sounds great and they say well how do I actually do it right what what do I do what are the action steps and I think that's where, where a lot of people get lost and I've been through a number of different underwriting exercises where we're going through different questions on the application and by and large, people want to do the right thing. People want to be more secure, but sometimes they don't even know what the terms on the application mean. Right? They don't know what that process is. They don't know what this means. They don't know how to implement it. Right? And there's a tremendous amount of education that's involved with the entire cyber risk process. So th- my, my general theme here is that you know get involved with it, find out you know, what you need to do. Take action one way or another. Talk to a firm that's engaged in this, right? Because another thing I was gonna mention before is it's not, this is different than IT, right? IT's function is to keep you up and running, right? And yeah, there are different things and processes that they're gonna be involved with and they're a crucial (laughs) part of this. And a lot of times I work with the IT teams because they're the guys who've been asking for funding to implement all these different processes and technologies. Right, but maybe they didn't get that because you know, it was a line item and we're trying to keep the book straight. I understand that from a business perspective, but you have to look at the flip side there. What's the cost of not implementing these measures and where does that get reflected ultimately?
4: I, th- I think that's an important point, and I think that you know, for, for too long, and it's still an issue, where many organizations continue to look at cybersecurity as an IT issue, but in actuality, by law, whether it's with regulation, statute, or common law, it's being recognized as a corporate governance issue that needs to make its way into the boardroom, into the C suite, and they need to have an active participatory role in actually understanding the risk, the threats to their company, and how they're going to address those threats. And have you seen that in corporations that, say, your clients that you're dealing with, how they? addressing it from a corporate
1: governance perspective in terms of the C-suite being more involved in those types of determinations. I think unfortunately, I mean, just from where we stand, our, our experience, which is sort of firms, as I said, a kind of a wide smattering of firms across different industries. Unfortunately, we're very early on in the process still. Um, and, and I would say specifically, even where you see, even where we see evidence of sort of policies and procedures and incident response plan, for instance, has been drafted. People are generally aware of it. They've done some phishing and some basic training Uh, They've had a quote-unquote risk assessment done, and even where their IT teams are relatively forward-leaning on this stuff, which is great. All those things are great. Mm -hmm. That's still the very beginning of the curve, and it's still unfortunately the minority of firms that are at that point. I would underscore something else for you, which is when you talk about cybersecurity per se, this is a buzzword, and part of the problem we have with communication is uh, that we use the word for convenience, but you're exactly right. There are misconceptions around it. One of those misconceptions is that that's the same as IT, and certainly it is not. Um, you know, the average IT person is absolutely not a forensics investigator. They are absolutely not ethical hackers. It's a bit like confusing your Equinox trainer with a heart surgeon when you say, well, they're both focused <laughs> on my health. This, they must do the same thing. I mean, it, And that's not to put down the guy who's doing the training, the everyday sort of fundamentals of our world that are, that are technology oriented. We certainly agree those are great things and we work hand in hand and very harmoniously with the IT teams. But it has to be their broader awareness, it has to be from the top down, uh, absolutely a corporate governance type thing where there's testing and validation and everybody's involved. And you absolutely, at the end of the day, must bring in third-party, skilled, credentialed folks that, that do these things for a living to, uh, to test and, uh, and uh, address these risks. Yeah, the, w- the one piece I'll add to that is a lot
2: of these companies are in the mindset of making money first, they don't think security first um, nothing wrong with it. That's our capitalistic ways here, but the 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 point is that a lot of them don't change that mindset until something catastrophic happens to their organization from the from a, a breach. Um, once that breach occurs, then they're okay. We need to redesign our systems. We need to set up a brand new network. Have stronger architecture. Separate domain admins from regular user accounts. Uh, let's actually, let's actually force uh, multi-factor on our email now. Let's. Let's encrypt our laptops. A lot of companies still don't encrypt laptops. So it, it's once that breach occurs that you can see the pivotal shift, you know, with uh, w- the mindset of the organization. Um, and, and once they get that funding going and they, they're moving through that process of, okay, it's gonna cost us this much every year to, to maintain that, then they get into that point of, all right, we're gonna have to make more money to offset these, the increase in expenses. But, you know, really, if, if you, run the, you run your security team as an operating unit, you're really, paying yourself your own insurance because you're going to prevent or at least minimize um, you know downstream effects of this event happening again.
4: You had mentioned uh, encryption. How important is that as far as whether it's on a laptop or on the network itself? As far as uh, encrypting data that's both in rest and in transit and if either or both, have, uh, John and Steve, if you can speak to the difference between the two and the importance of that.
2: Sure, I'll take the endpoint. I think encryption on mobile devices and, and Thumb drives and or flash drives, um, laptops is is crucial. Um, I can't tell you how many times you know I, I get into a taxi on a business trip or I'm in an airplane uh, on a business trip. I take my laptop out, start you know working, and then put it back in my bag. Get out of the taxi. Five minutes later, I'm freaking out because I don't know if it's in my bag. I couldn't remember. You know, um, so having the, the the at least the fallback on. By the way, it was in my bag all the time. "It's so <laughs> happening." Um, everybody's staring at me here. <laughs> a little hot. But um, no, I mean, I can't tell you how many times that knowing at least my devices were encrypted, should I have been the unfortunate for uh, leaving it behind. Um, I can tell you I've, I've responded to, you know, countless events where somebody from HR who's not supposed to have data on their, their laptop left their laptop at a bar from a, from a company happy hour. You know, okay, well, what type of data was on there? Well, we can't tell you. Do you have any backups for that system? No, we're not sure. What systems did they have access to? Can we run a report from there from those log files mm-hmm. we mentioned before? You know, these are the thoughts, w- these are the thought process we go through if, if we can't find that laptop. Um, John, you want to talk a little bit yeah, about encryption? Uh, absolutely. From your perspective? I mean, I
1: definitely agree with all of that. Um, and I'll just say, this, I'll throw in uh, virtual machines as well while we're on the subject yeah. because segmentation of data and segmentation of, of, of your, your communications and kind of where, where things sit and how you operate throughout the day. Um, one of the things, the, the low-hanging fruit we recommend to people is, is to use the, the virtual machines which you can run on your, you know, on your laptop. And, and an example of where that really comes in handy is when you're talking about phishing and social engineering, um, let's assume someone does get on to the endpoint. Um, you know One of the things is you, you wanna be sure that the, if you can, the system where you're, you're, you're checking your email and you're doing a lot of your daily work is not necessarily doesn't have the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. So encryption is part of that, but segmentation through various measures, including virtual machines, is another very important one. So I'm throwing that in there. But to get back to the uh, the uh, encryption, it's absolutely critical um, in terms of data at rest. I'll I'll add something else. A lot of folks think, well, our data is backed up, so we're good to go. Not true. Okay, great that you backed it up, right? I was just talking with people that run a data center yesterday, and and they're doing a great job of backing up. You know the the, the data they hold, they host and, and whatnot for their clients. And they have something like a 12 or 24 hour um, get you back up and running in terms of replacing that data if it's lost and maybe through ransomware it's encrypted or whatever the case may be. But typically what's what happens there is a number of different factors, whether it's because there's a hybrid infrastructure across that network where you, you, know, you may have legacy systems, you may have systems that where the data is not backed up regularly. Maybe they're running an outdated operating system that's embedded that ties to a lot of other applications they use because it's medical services or others where it's not easy to upgrade and patch on a regular basis or to just need to replace things. There's a lot going on in the equation where it's not simply a a, a matter of, oh, are there backups or not? You hope there are. It's great if there are, but it's not a light switch. Um, We see that in a lot of respects. that's, That's one thing in terms of data and and the recovery of data, right? Um, in transit, I'll just say, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the ways that we'll hack into uh, or you know try to get onto a network would be to look at wireless access points, uh, for instance, or other means of putting ourselves in the middle. What's commonly referred to as a man-in-the-middle attack, where you can get onto a system or onto a you know interject yourself in the flow of traffic somehow between the end user and whatever they're trying to get to on the internet. Uh, Maybe that they're accessing a website you got them to click and you're now redirecting them and you're you're harvesting the flow of Communications as they're pulling and sending information to a site Um, It could be that you've managed to knock them off of an access point impersonate that access point get them to re-authenticate to you And now they're basically all that traffic is coming through you Um, There are different ways that it's done. Obviously, there's a lot of different ways that can be done but the bottom line is if that traffic is encrypted through a VPN or other uh, a variety of things Uh, HTTPS traffic, uh, then then I may be sitting in between you and wherever you're trying to get to, but it's going to be more difficult for me to decipher that information and use it. So we've been uh,
0: discussing mostly the motivations and the means of white hat hackers, but what are the uh, motivations of black hat hackers, and are there different motivations depending on country, depending on region, depending on industry targeted, like and what are your dealings with, with black hat hackers, just generally?
1: I'll make a quick comment and then I want to turn it over to Steve. Uh, I know that we, we each have different levels of interaction with, with that sort of thing. Um, I, would, I would just say from our experience and, and, and you know, whatever, our, our daily life in this space, that it's all of the above. It's anything you can think of in terms of motivation. It might be someone, you've heard a lot about activist groups uh, over the last few years in particular, but it could be somebody, we mentioned ScriptKitties earlier. ScriptKitties is just this term that's thrown out for people that are basically low skill, that are using you know, libraries they can download, off, download offline and something like Kali Linux, and they're sort of plug and play, right? Um, where they don't really have to understand what they're doing so much as they do just point it at an IP address and see what sticks. And, and that's, that's, that's very prevalent, right? Monetary gain is another one. Uh, and, and so it's sort of all of the above in terms of motivation. I generally stay away from the subject when clients bring it up because it's difficult to know initially what that motivation is. Also because the tendency in general, this is kind of a theme in our conversation, is that um, folks are not yet where we'd like them to be in terms of being proactive. So unfortunately, the tendency sometimes when you get engaged and you're trying to convince firms to be proactive is to look for any reason not to do X, Y, and Z because it's complicated. It, It diverts their attentions. You know, they're just, they're uncomfortable with it. It's scary. So rather than run through a playbook of what might be the motivation behind the attacker, and it could be anything, we try to help them understand that, you know, there are lots of motivations out there. And oftentimes when somebody initially comes after you, whether it's through malware or other means, they didn't have you in mind as the target. They found out after the fact when something beaconed back to them. Now they're just kind of interested in seeing, can I get in? And then once I'm in, let me see what I can find. So you don't have to start from the premise of you were targeted, you were on somebody's radar to begin with, it can happen, you know, uh, very organically as it were.
2: Yeah, I'd echo all of that. Um, The one I'd add to it is a security researcher, uh, the individual that uh, wants to go find the open door, notify the company in, in hopes that they can either publish the vulnerability for that company or that they'll get paid money. So I'll throw notoriety on the list of motivations as well. Um, which kind of gets into the the bug bounty program we're starting to see companies get involved with. Uh, Bug bounty is basically welcoming, uh, putting up up walls against your organization, but welcoming the general public to try to find vulnerabilities to gain access to your systems. Um, So it's inviting anybody and everybody who's a hacker to go knock on your company's door and try to get in there. So if you don't have good risk management policy procedure, you don't have threat hunting teams, you don't have an IR team or security team, that once this email comes in and says, hey, I touched this X, Y, and Z system, here's a sample of data, this is how I did it, you don't have a team to go and triage that immediately, you're just welcoming you know, a lot of trouble from legalities depending on that system to more hackers finding that hole, um, possibly you know holding that information, downloading more information, holding that at ransom um, for you. So there's a there's a lot that goes into you know building these bug bounty programs and, and welcoming individuals publicly that you may never meet to, to find these uh, gaps in your, your organization. I want
1: to add one more important one, which is insiders. And, and I know that Steve's team is very, Crypsis is very familiar with this as well, but we've done cases where we worked on it. And, I, and some of the most complex stuff you're going to run into because you're automatically dealing with an authorized user at one level or another there, right? Somebody who knows the organization, not just where things are, but they know you, they know your processes, they know who's who, they know when you're out of the office. And they're taking steps in many cases to destroy the evidence as they go. And, and they can get very creative. You'd be surprised how fast people learn technology when they're, they know they're about to, they could be caught for something. They're gonna learn a lot more than you think they can even if you don't think of them as an IT person. So you know, insiders are a big one that everybody should be aware of.
3: Yeah, and just uh, my only last point to this, right, is that we could go on all day about what it is. And the bottom line is it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what the hacker's motivation was behind that, and you may never know it even after you go through this whole process, right? And that's, that's something I get across because we could sit here and list out all these different ways you could get hacked and all the different reasons that a hacker may or may not do one of these different things or an insider or anyone, right? And at bottom line, it doesn't really matter which method they use or what their motivation was, right? What matters is how do you prepare for it and then what do you have set up to respond to that incident, right? And how are you going to handle it? Do you have roadmap? That's really what you can prepare for. You can't control what the external actor is going to do, but you can control your reaction to it.
0: So as uh, as an insurance guy, you wouldn't factor the general reputation of a company in terms of being you know, considered a good company as opposed to, like, you know an evil corporation. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, you can come up with your own example. But that wouldn't be, that (laughs) would not be... That's an interesting
3: question. So are you asking if the insurance industry is morally ambivalent?
0: Well, what I'm asking is, like, when you... Just looking at the data, you don't see any hacker preference for hacking into certain companies above others based on their perceived goodness, say.
3: Uh, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a difficult, I think that's a difficult thing to measure. But... I, I I agree. Kind of going back to, almost that it doesn't matter what they're doing, but also, like, there's a presentation slide that I use sometimes that says you're not special, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that is, to, to John's point, when when you're blasting out all these different attacks, you might just be looking for a specific vulnerability. And when you get that ping, that okay, we found this vulnerability in this organization, then. The the actor looks at what the organization does. They're looking for a way in. Then they figure out what is this company and what are they doing. You know, I think aside from hacktivists, people who are actively targeting something for a specific reason, or nation states who are targeting specific entities for a specific reason, right? By and large, the hackers are either trying to do something for monetary gain or just doing things to disrupt things, or just for the hell of it, right? Maybe they're just doing it for fun. And once again, you're not gonna know, but I think, look, it could go either way, but I don't think that necessarily hackers are saying, you know, this is an evil company, we don't like these guys, Okay. let's go after them specifically, unless that's their whole deal, their are hackers.
0: Okay, uh, let's uh, touch briefly on uh, ransomware attacks. They've been getting more and more currency what kind, of, what kind of experience do you guys have in ransomware attacks? And uh, could you tell me a little bit about you know, perhaps any kind of good story, say, uh, in terms of you know, what, the, what the corporate, corporate victim was uh, asked for or how they responded, and also whether going to law enforcement is a good idea or maybe a bad idea when it comes to ransomware attacks?
2: How much time do we have left (laughs) (laughs) and for all the listeners everybody here just pointed at each other (laughs) (laughs) Um, so uh, ransomware it's real it exists Uh, it's devastatingly crippling to an organization these the tactics these groups use um, once they gain access to your system um, are, are pretty pretty crafty they try to find a domain administrator, if not multiple domain administrator accounts. They create their own domain administrator accounts. They look for your backups, your company organization's backups, and then they go and delete them. That's everything that's local to the system, um, volume shadow copy on Windows systems, or maybe you have your own backup technology installed um, to the enterprise backups. we've even seen them try to gain access to the cloud-based backups that are hosted by a third party by comp- trying to compromise credentials to get into those systems to delete those backups. And then they usually they launch you know other types of malware through the organization reconnaissance malware uh, banking Trojans to basically key log uh, find other usernames and passwords to banking websites and then finally once they're done with whatever purpose they were doing up to that point because there's it's a varying they're on your computer network they can use your computers for whatever crypto mining uh, for email relay spam, um, for just general nefarious activities to p- launch attacks against brute, fo- um, brute force attacks against other organizations or even botnets, you know, for denial of service and so forth. But once they get done using your resources, they launch the ransomware. Each group has their own tactics and techniques they use to gain access to the system, but at the end of the day, when that ransomware is launched, you can't use that system, you can't use your data, especially if they delete your backups. So now you're stuck physically stuck, your business operations are halted. Depending on where your email server sits, you may not be able to even receive email. Depending on your website sits, you may not be able to uh, have your website operational. So your business literally comes to a halt and there's no easy way to get it back up and running if you don't have backups. Um, We've seen organizations, you know, take a few days to get back up and running because they had good backups, they were secure. And we've seen organizations take weeks to get back up and running because they didn't have good backups and they had to interact with the threat uh, actor or they just attempted to recover from whatever they could recover from. So the, the ransomware is you know, a, a huge catastrophic event that no organization should go through um, if they have a good risk management plan, if they're testing their, their operational procedures correctly, that they know their backups are in uh, a warm site or they're off, off uh, site um, at a different location that doesn't have access unless it needs to um, to their current organization. So in a whole, you know, ransomware, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty bad. Um, I'll pause here. What, what, are, what are some of your other ideas, John? I would just,
1: I wanna echo one thing and, and make a couple of quick points on top of what you're saying. One thing I wanna echo is this backups that we mentioned before and, and it comes up again and again, because folks oftentimes make a mistake of thinking we have backups, we're good to go. Um, the, the fact that you're seeing a trend where the attackers are first looking to disable that process of, of backing, of, of being able to use your backups to get back in the running, or they're destroying, you know, corrupting those backups ahead of time. That's that's very real, and that's something that people need to be aware of, right? So I'm saying that not because backups are bad, but because the misconception you often run into is, well, we have backups, and we got our basic insurance, and we did some phishing, good to go. And it's like, those are good things, but not necessarily enough. Um, the second thing is in terms of you know trends and what what you see when you get involved in these incidents, is that uh, the amount of time that an attacker spends on your network or on your mail system or, or wherever uh, harvesting information and doing the different things they're doing before you they've been detected or before they, they launch that that ransomware attack is oftentimes months. That's a misconception or something people are just may maybe have lack of awareness of is, is how off how long that process can go on. So what is that? it it sort of speaks to the importance of being proactive. When you do breach readiness review and and planning and so forth, it needs to involve active testing, uh, as we've already touched on, because, uh, again, it's not if, but when, and the trend is that, that these things have been going on for quite a while before someone takes an over action, whether it's ransomware, whether it's, you know, the the fraud even the fraudulent email where they're trying to do a wire transfer something overt that they think is probably going to get noticed they've probably done quite a bit of recon down that that network for a while and it's only through looking for that activity actively that you're going to uh, hopefully catch that early Um, and that includes again office 365 so if you're not looking at those logs on a regular basis you you know you're, you're probably setting yourself up for an eventual issue there um, I also want to mention just in terms of the investigation process, this is something that again, you know, big issues we run into. People kind of this goes, this is sort of parallel to thinking do you have backups or not that it's some binary light switch. We have them. okay, let's do it. Let's do the backups. A, a forensics investigation is very, you know, there are a lot of moving parts as, we, as Steve's touched on and we've talked about, and one of the hardest things, whether it's because of lack of logging or other issues and communications generally, is that, you know, you are required by law to make notifications. All 50 states, I believe you know the lawyers can weigh in here, have requirements at some level or another to notify if there's been a loss of uh, PII or, or sense of information. But before you can get to that point, you have to figure out what was taken, who did it belong to. You have to understand what, what was data did data leave the environment, Which data specifically left that environment? And so it's important for people to realize that oftentimes the most difficult and complicated step there, while you're under the time crunch perhaps of a ransomware deadline is to actually do that investigation and and so again i want to i'm emphasizing these things for general awareness and so that people understand that if you're not actively planning actively testing and making this part of a real life risk management process that you all understand and get into each day at one level or another um you're kind of setting yourself up up for failure if you're waiting until something happens to try to address it
3: yeah and i i agree with all of that And I think, you know, what I've heard sometimes, believe it or not, you know, in meetings is, you know, you'll hear about ransom demands, and maybe they're not some outrageous number, right? Maybe it's a few thousand dollars. So I've had people sit across from me and say, Well, why do I need insurance for that? I'll just pay, I'll just pay the ransom and be done with it. Why do I need to pay for anything? Right? And to John's point, there's, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes, when ransomware is involved with your systems, right? So just Having a ransomware notification pop up on your computer, you paying the money does not equal this entire problem being done. To John's point, you have no idea. First off, if you do that, will the person release your files? Second off, is your system gonna work? Third, did they access any of the information? How are you gonna know that? The only way to do that is to look into it. You're gonna have to do an investigation. And so, like, from an insurance perspective on on ransomware, the idea behind the insurance is to fund the incident response, right? But ransomware, the coverage in the insurance forms, cyber liability forms, actually provides coverage for the payment of ransoms. However, you want to make sure that before you start sending out money to some nebulous character, that it's actually going to have the effect that you want. Are they going to be able to prove to you that the encryption key that they have works with the ransomware that they use, right? And you wanna make sure that you have, you know, using a, a term that's borrowed from general ransom, like a proof of life, right? Can they show you that you'll be able to get those systems back? And then what do you take, what steps do you take afterwards to make sure that information is secure? Because keep in mind, there's also a lot of guys out there that will hack somebody, somebody will pay the ransomware and then they put together a list of all the people that have paid ransoms, and then they sell that list to other hackers, who then know that these people have paid once, they'll probably pay again.
4: When you were talking about the um, ransomware and the expense, it's not just the expense with, you know, they'll, they'll pay off the ransom um, rather than have insurance. But the fact is that under HIPAA, once they've had a documented ransomware attack it's presumed to that they've acquired protected health information and which in turn would trigger the breach notification rules so unless you can rebut that presumption then the second you've had that ransomware attack you're not merely incurring the expense of paying off the ransom you now have to incur all the expenses associated with
1: breach notification. I would have to assume and I'm not the lawyer, but I may be ask mm-hmm. this as a question instead of Bob, is that that will eventually promulgate more generally the presumption that data has been lost by way of ransomware, not just under HIPAA in the healthcare industry, but elsewhere. You know, right, it, like I you have to assume that, that that's eventually going to become the standard general. I,
4: I think that's true, and I think you see in a lot of courts, particularly when you in federal court, when you're dealing with the standing issue and whether or not you suffered a concrete the claimed victim has suffered a concrete injury. The issue is, well, there's no evidence that the tutored plaintiff has in any way um, had their identity stolen or that their information has been used in a harmful way. And courts initially were agreeing with that as far as standing is concerned. And you had Spokio and other cases come out, particularly from the Supreme Court, that said you need to have, recognize that you need to have a concrete and particular harm, the plaintiff did. But as case words evolve around the circuits, they're starting to recognize that the mere fact that plaintiff's identity has not yet been stolen or used in some harmful way doesn't mean that they haven't suffered a concrete harm or injury, but there's the risk in the future that they may. And the reason why people hack in general is because they have an intention to do something nefarious with that information that will not be to benefit of the plaintiff. So increasingly, you're seeing courts recognize that, yes, they do satisfy what's known as Article 3 standing and their claims can proceed. And so I do think that, getting to your point, John, that courts are going to implement that kind of Standard, or they're increasingly recognizing that the mere fact that that information was acquired, it was accessed, is enough to allow standing to go forward. It's sort of creating a presumption.
0: So you have it in your insurance policies that you do sometimes, I suppose, pay out ransom. Do you have a set policy on contacting law enforcement?
3: So uh, you sound skeptical about the ransom payments. You <laughs> allegedly have something in there about well, paying ransoms. for the
4: audience, you, you probably need to distinguish between standalone cybersecurity policies and maybe, you know, um, a CGL policy, commercial general liability policy, which isn't generally going to cover any kind of cyber loss or risk. Right. Um, at least that's what the courts have been finding. So, you know, if you're talking in the context of a cyber security policy, perhaps. Um, You know, Tim's skepticism about coverage might be a little bit less. Yeah, no, no, I think that's
3: that's a fair point, right? And I I think the term general liability is really coming back to haunt the insurance industry because you hear general liability and people are like, well, yeah, I got covered for whatever people sue me for, right? And that's an important thing to remember, right? Like, liability coverage is, is if there's a claim against you. Somebody has to be suing you. A lot of these things that we're talking about there's nobody suing you yet this is just something that's happening to you right and that's huge right and that also speaks to because we're talking about lawyers here right so now you're talking about it's a corporate governance issue i'm an attorney right so is it my professional responsibility to protect this information
4: right i I would say that it is i would say that the rules of ethics actually require you to implement competent and reasonable steps and measures to protect the data and law firms are no different than any other corporation or organization with respect to their duty to protect sensitive information and if they don't implement those reasonable steps they may find themselves either in a class action lawsuit in a derivative well in a derivative lawsuit through cross indemnification provisions with their clients they they will be exposed to liability one way or the other either as a result of breaching their clients customers information or breaching the client's own information so that becomes an issue for them Right. And so what I hear sometimes is,
3: well, I have, you know, like I have my lawyer's malpractice coverage. So if I if anybody decides to sue me, then whatever, I'll just put it under there. First off, do you want that hitting your malpractice insurance even if it were to be covered? Right? Is that is that where you want it to be hit? Probably not. Second, we're still not t- we're talking about liability, right? We're talking about where somebody's brought a case against you. We're not talking about any of the first party costs, the stuff that John and siege firms do, right? The hiring of a breach coach outside counsel to come in and take a look at what's happening and game plan what your next steps are. Something also very important to understand, when you bring in a breach coach, right? It's the breach coach that hires the forensics team afterwards, okay? And there's an attorney in the room, so I'll defer to you on this, but in terms of privileged information, that makes a big difference, right?
4: Absolutely, you want to protect, you want to create that attorney-client, privilege relationship, work product relationship, and having the outside law firm retain the forensics uh, company is rich towards that.
3: Right, and, and then you start talking about the forensic firm that's being brought in, right? Keep in mind, you've had something go wrong at this point, right, so all the steps that you put in place And you may have been doing a very good job as an organization in terms of creating a good cyber risk posture. But something happened, and now you have an incident. And now you can't utilize the same people that have been involved with it all along. You need to bring in somebody from the outside, not only for their expertise, but to also protect yourself down the line from the lawsuits that are going to follow this, right? And you need to make sure that somebody else is taking a hard look at this and making sure that you did everything, to your point, the big word that you see in here, you took all the reasonable steps in in the wake of this incident.
0: To wrap up, we've heard a, a good summary of many of the issues affecting cybersecurity. So just as a, uh, a general question to everyone, uh, are we better off in terms of uh preventing hacking in terms of dealing with uh, hacking incidents now than we were five years ago, say, and where do you think we're going uh, in terms of the next five years?
1: Um, so there's some respects with, you know, in, in which I think things are improving, and one of those is through the engagement of the breach coaches, the, the breach litigation law firms, people that understand this stuff some proactive measures there around insurance in particular, which I think is helping to move the ball to help people understand, okay, much like health insurance, you know, you're gonna get the health insurance, but you're required to be doing certain things to show you're not a smoker, for instance. You have that EKG here. That's helping to move the ball, I think, in terms of other discrete steps we should and must be taking. And then, you know, the litigation, for, for lack of better, you know, uh, sort of general general terms here, I think that's another, that's another thing that's the, the class actions, et cetera. These things, they, they hit the news, et cetera, they make people aware there's a real monetary risk that's more obvious than trying to convince somebody that they might be the target of, a, of, of an attack, right? You know, it's just more, if they, people see that in the news, they understand it's a risk. There's, those are positives in a certain way. Um, but, I, but I think there's also still a very big communication gap in particular between uh, uh, technology and, and the sort of non-tech savvy folks within organizations I think that permeates, especially at the sea level of the average groups we speak with. Folks are not only not technologically aware, but they, are, they don't want to admit that they are. And so what I think needs to happen there is better integration and better communication. There's a lot to that, but I'll just say that. Lastly, just sort of summary of what I see as the trend. Look, in terms of the progression of what we do to detect, contain, mitigate, re, you know, remediate, all those things, and where the attackers are today and how prevalent the attacks are, so both the sort of prevalence of attacks and the impact of those attacks on a given organization, sort of average statistically, and over the over our economy, it is absolutely worse now than it's ever been. And it will absolutely be worse in five, year it, five years than it is today. Because the skills, the communication among attackers, so the skill sets among those attackers, the communication abilities and willingness to communicate among those folks, and their incentives, monetarily and otherwise, are flatly far beyond that of the average organization, the folks within the average organization that are tasked with defending. I liken it to something like guerrilla warfare where they, the, the, the folks coming after you are highly incentivized and difficult to sort of pin down and identify and, and, and go after them for different reasons. And like I say, their skill sets and motivations and so forth are oftentimes well beyond that of let's just say the IT team in your organization. And so this 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 sort of general wisdom that it's not a matter of if but when, and that you must proactively, you know, you got to lean into this stuff, start testing, looking to actively detect uh, 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 indicators of compromise in that environment, be working with incident response firms, Cripsis in advance of an of an incident, so that when it does happen, you know, you have that lawyer and you have the the IR team, incident response team on call. Those things absolutely are going to be even more critical to the overall health. Of your organization five years from now than than they are today i think the
2: one thing that we didn't we didn't touch on through this uh, last hour was hackers as a service you know john you pointed out you know the, the sophistication growing the communications between these groups are growing uh, there's you know specifically with ransomware we've seen a huge trend of you have the developers of the ransomware who license the ransomware to certain threat groups those groups then take that and run their campaigns. And the developers have glorious websites on the dark web that you log into, that you, through a chat bot, you communicate with them, and um, you send proof of life to. And then, you know, if they send something back and say, hey, this doesn't work right, or it doesn't look right, can you explain it to me? Well, send me another file, we'll figure this one out, I'll have my engineers look at it, or I'll have to get my tech guys to look at it. So not only not only do they have a support structure, but they have the developers, they have the, their own tech guys. These folks are most notably somewhere else in the world other than America. Um, so they have an on-call structure to deal with us during our business hours when we come into work at 9 a.m. and discover this. So it's, it's they're, they're, they're pretty crafty and they're starting to organize between themselves um, to launch larger scale uh, attacks. They're sharing information, um, encrypted communications uh, on the dark web. They're constantly talking to each other to learn more about what they can do and how they can best uh, win the money.
3: <laughs> yeah, and you know I think if you look over the past five years in the insurance industry, you see a huge shift. Right to, to Bob's point earlier, uh, general liability is, tr- is traditionally not going to cover you for cyber losses. <coughs> property coverage, data is intangible property, so you're going to see a big exclusion there. E and O or professional liability, maybe. And do you want it there? And do you want those people handling it? Also something you know, that's evolved is the interplay on a cyber incident with DNO insurance. You know, the, the guys at the top take all the actions that they should have. And you're gonna see shareholder disputes there as well. Um, and what I'll say is I think that the, the insurance industry, not known for its speed and agility, I think you know, over the past five years has made a lot of progress in terms of how the forms are written, what they're designed to cover, because initially, you know, I, I remember going back four or five years, you, know, you got some of these forms and it wasn't very clear what they were gonna cover. And you had to put on a lot of endorsements to make things clear. And you still do have to put on endorsements, you're always gonna have to do that and tweak your coverage as the threats evolve so too should your approach to coverage there. And I, I think the biggest change and the, the really the path forward that I see is making sure that those in the insurance industry, uh, both on the carrier side, the broker side, I think you need to make sure that you're working closely with the cybersecurity folks and the people doing the due diligence to make sure that going forward, right, there's a way that there's going to be a sustainable infrastructure there. Because if these insurance carriers don't work with the cybersecurity folks and don't make sure that these companies are putting the controls in place that they need to, they're going to get crushed with losses and you're going to see premiums skyrocket, right? So it's in everyone's best interest to take a holistic approach to this and going forward make sure you have an attitude of we're all in this together. And that's that's how I look at it.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with uh, everything that everyone said here. And I, I, I think, in general, the most recent studies show that corporations, organizations in general, are more aware of cybersecurity as a risk to their business and are doing more about it. But if you ask those same individuals who responded to surveys whether the corporations are doing enough, the answer invariably is no. And I think that there has to be more education and more training and more sensitivity. And in many ways, these class action lawsuits serve as a warning to corporations that they need to do something. And the derivative lawsuits that are brought by the shareholders against the board of directors and the officers, and right now, most of those lawsuits get dismissed because of what's known as the business judgment rule and deference to a corporation's reasonable judgment as to what it should do to protect this data. But in fact, there are very few derivative lawsuits on on the cybersecurity front that have survived motions to dismiss. But from a lawyer's perspective, it's always going to come back to are are they implementing, are organizations implementing reasonable steps to protect their data? And it's not going to be one size fits all. It has to be flexible enough to recognize what the resources are, but not to the point where it excuses a company from not implementing reasonable steps that it should have, given the sensitivity of the data they have. And I think that the answer to those corporations that maybe have access to, you know, terabytes of information and yet don't want to implement the steps that are required to protect that data is get out of that business or there'll be a class action lawsuit. that sees that you do. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think that, that it's really about, you know as, as far as insurance is concerned, um, it needs to be an integral part of the risk assessment of the company. How much coverage do they need? What is their exposure? What data do they have? How are they protecting it? What's the likelihood that someone's going to get access to it? according to you, they already have <laughs> more um, of test, tests
0: periodically to see yeah. if they can yeah thank you all for contributing to this podcast, uh, it was fantastic and I think it will be very interesting to our uh, listeners and uh, again this is uh, Tim Peterson with Bob Stern on behalf of the 44th Street Podcast we'll see you next time